you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we chat with Kiki Devine, dancer Emily Bowman, and Alison Thorne and Georgie Hoadley from Radical Women join us. But first, our interview with Holly Durant about her show, Alter Edith. Edith is kind of, I mean, I say that she's the best version of me and I think we all sort of have that kind of little character, those kind of parts inside of us that are our favourite sort of versions of ourselves and and Edith just happens to be mine and, and she is this kind of outer space being with a penchant for certain sort of sentimental little human things that she tries on and tries to make sense of from her perspective, her sort of extraterrestrial perspective. Tell us how the show works. Like, uh, yeah, how the how does how does it all happen? Well, the, it's it's sort of it's quite disruptive the way that this show works. Just in that sort of classic theatre sense, you know, we're sort of quite accustomed to buying a ticket, sitting quietly in the dark, and there's sort of this contract, I suppose, when you go to the theatre, where if you be quiet enough and <laughs> pretend you're not here, I'll take you somewhere amazing. And I guess this show is a little bit more somewhere between the lands of a classic theatre performance, a gallery exhibition, a bar, a gig, you know, there's sort of, it's a lot of not quite, it's not quite in any of those spaces, but it's a little bit in all of those spaces. So it's 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 kind of an installation, it's kind of not, but it, it, it runs for two hours or there's two hours of viewing, the cycle just sort of goes endlessly. So you can just come in and leave as you like, sort of Mexican cinema style, you know, grab a drink at the bar, take a break, change your position. So there's sort of an invitation for the audience to kind of choose their own adventure in a sense to kind of curate their experience and allow their body to be as much part of the show as mine is or anyone else so we're we're sort of all active together and acknowledging that audience position that without being watched is a performance really a performance you know we're sort of energetically building it together building this world so I, I hope that that's kind of an enjoyable thing to sort of pull apart a little bit not having to be seated not having to behave in a certain way. Do you really challenge the norms with everything you do about, you know, audience interaction and use of the body in performance? It's amazing. Yeah, I think there's some depth still to go. I I think that's an exciting thing, this idea of like co-presence. We're all building this together. It's not you watching me. It's us, you know, building a something, doing something together. And and it's and it's a te- it is a temporary world. We're building a little bubble together over 2 hours in this little space on Flinders Lane in Melbourne. And it's it's different every single time. So there's oh yeah, I think there's something exciting about that. Describe it for us visually. Yeah, well, you know, Edith is Edith was a club act from way back from years ago, and in fact, even before she was a club act, she was a, a transition. You know, I think it was a dark mofo. I can't quite remember years and years ago, and we had these kind of two dollar shop alien masks, which are you know they're quite they're quite haunting these big gorgeous eyes and someone needed to get changed and they weren't quite ready to go on stage and we had to stall and I ran on stage with a martini and this alien mask on and everyone took out their phone camera ready to take a picture of the performance and just nothing happened (laughs) so in this kind of nothingness is kind of like a reference to almost like Dada, that kind of mid-century ridiculousness, absurdness, the kind of refusal of performance. So she's kind of an anti-character in a lot of ways. And that's the club act that went on for years and years as she comes out to Edith Piaf's Jenner Regressory and she stands still and she tries to drink a martini across about five minutes. And there's something both frustrating and deeply satisfying about the fact that she just does nothing and takes a bow. (laughs) 
It sounds like it sounds like she was bored out of spontaneity. Absolutely, yeah. There's exactly that. I mean, the show is really that too. It's all it's improvised through these sets of kind of saturated visuals and very kind of musically saturated, and the design is really heavy and the colours enormous. Like it's a very big sort of queer campery funness. Um, and and exactly that, it is kind of all up for grabs, how you watch it, what you take in from it. There's these kind of massive arcs and these tiny narratives and I think people pick up on various things. You know, the, the biggest arc of the show and the, is, is that kind of classic cabaret reverse strip, you know, this character that, that starts nude and then gets dressed and that question, you know, is is getting undressed the only erotic thing? Can getting dressed also be super evocative and super kind of... Um, sensual I suppose so so it's a basically it's a very long form slow motion reverse strip (laughs) and what a juxtaposition like on the one hand you say Edith doesn't do anything on the other hand it sounds like a really busy show yeah yeah I think there's a lot going on and there's nothing going on and it's kind of like in you know that sort of sci-fi way of thinking about how, whether it's you know lowbrow hype, whatever you want to think about it there's this idea that if you take any one piece away the whole world falls apart because it's all ridiculous sort of um, objects and and events and images and they all reference each other and they're all quite in their way, quite sort of banal and simple. But when you push them all together, they make this kind of, exactly as you say, so much and so little all happening at once. So, I, yeah, I, I, think, um, I think there's a lot to look at, even though sometimes nothing at all is happening. I, I, I hope that's not a red herring, but... I- <laughs> Trying not to give too much away for people to come and see, but yes. And Edith kind of sounds rebellious and a bit subversive as well, kind of almost sending up the seriousness of some performances. I think that, yeah, I think that that she's on the edge of that, that kind of almost um, self-indulgence with the level of observation and kind of her her specificity, but also exactly that, that kind of refusal of certain amount of seriousness, that kind of gentle undercut, you know, things that... I mean, she's sort of trying on these humannesses, these things that we just do and assume all the time, these tiny little movements in the body or small materials we touch every day, actions we do, and she takes time to really find those tiny pleasures in them. So it's slow. It's kind of almost frustratingly slow, but as you say, there's that kind of satisfaction in a bit of refusal or her, her, her decision to not quite give you everything you want. You must have a great emotional connection to Edith. You must feel like she's like your relative, your twin sister. Oh, I love Edith. Absolutely. She's, she, I keep, I always say she's the best version of me, but people are really drawn to her when I'm in, when I'm in Edith's character, people want selfies. They want to chat with her. They're just, she's a lovable character. She's, <laughs> and there's multiple, you know, Gwell, who's does the music for the show, who's written the score, but also does a lot of live DJing, sort of pulling sounds out of the room and manipulating them. Gwell is also dressed in, Edith's costume and is also Edith. So there's multiple Ediths in the space where kind of this hive mind of brains and even the lighting operator wears part of Edith's costume. We're sort of all Edith in a way using kind of human human kind of translators, I guess, to sort of work out how we're meant to be using the objects or what we're meant to be doing. And it sounds like there's some real gender fluidity about Edith through that symbolism of the multiple people. Yeah, I think it's exactly that, you know, the, um, that worlds are not fixed, that entire worlds or, or truth, you know, true. there are multiple truths and it's all up for grabs, like things are not fixed. There's, as you say, it's 
every element is fluid and it's a choice which world you're in and which spectrums you're interested in and what sort of what's pleasurable rather than what's expected I suppose. Was lockdown helpful in developing Edith and this amazing show? Oh my goodness. I was I was about to say absolutely not and then I in taking a breath probably I mean, I think people are seeing in a lot of what's come out of this show. I mean, Edith really is about celebrating the body and celebrating the potential of our bodies, that we get to choose how we adorn ourselves, what the way we see ourselves, that we can step in and out of difference all the time. And I think, you know, the last 18 months have done some pretty strange things to our bodies. The bodies have become kind of abject. We're, we're sort of afraid of each other's bodies, physical contact, being close to people, touching has, has become kind of slightly taboo. So so I think, you know, no artist can make a work in a vacuum. So I, I do think that we're affected by everything that happens. And, and you know, we did most of our creative development on Zoom, which anyone who is interested in live performance and sees a lot of live performance or is a live performer would agree it's really hard to translate the nuance of live performance through zoom so working with a director across video link was super challenging to find what was there but I think you know in the same breath the show is really imbued with that sense of how awkward the rebirth into our own physicality is how how difficult but ultimately delightful it is to start to move closer to other people's bodies and and that and that we're all going to get it wrong you know that we're going to make mistakes and it's going to feel incredibly weird when we show up at that first party or family and you go oh god what do I say or I said the wrong thing oh uh, I just apologize to the door or whatever we've done that we're going to have these kind of new well we're having rebirths we're all kind of becoming again versions of ourselves or maybe better versions or new versions or allowing for difference to be with us and so so I think that's all there in the show too the difficulty of keeping going the yeah. oddness of 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 what our bodies are and what they have been doing what they haven't been allowed to do so so yeah in long very long answer to your question I I think that there is something great about the way it's been made even though it's been a real struggle to finish these things off which I think has been the case for a lot of artists and we're all as you say really learning to kind of you know interact socially interact together in the same space (laughs) Holly it's an awesome show give us the details so people can rock along to Alter Edith it's at 45 Johnstairs, number 45 Flinders Lane, the amazing independent theatre, absolutely gorgeous space. Um, it's at 8pm every night, Wednesday to Saturday, and it's at 4pm on Saturdays and Sundays. And tickets are through 45 Johnstairs website, or you can check me out on socials at Holly Durant, and I've got all the links in there and a few little previews if you want to have a little peek at the show before you come. Awesome stuff. Now, when does it close? It's closing on the 12th of December. Come and meet Edith. Fantastic. Holly Durant, thanks so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. See you at the show. Throw it up, throw it up. Like that. Watch it all fall out. Oh, no. Pull it up, pull it up. Like that. That's how we ball out. Oh, no. Throw it up, throw it up. Oh, no. Watch it all fall out. Oh, no. Pull it up, pull it up. Oh, no. That's how we ball out. Strip clubs and dollar bills. Still got my money. Patron shots, gonna get a refill. Strippers gone up and down that pole. Still got my money. Four o'clock and we ain't going home. Still got my money. Money make the world go round. Still got my money. Fans make your girl go down. Still got my money. I'm over that came from. Still got my money.
That's how we ball out. That's how we ball out. That's how we ball out. That lay cost a hundred bills. I still got my money. Gold all up in my grill. I still got my money. Who cares how you hate us, Bill? I still got my money. Call Jay up and close the deal. I still got my money. My fragrance on and they love my smell. I still got my money. So who cares about what I spend? I still got my money. My pocket's deep and they never Rihanna there, pour it up. And now to our interview with Kiki Devine from the House of Devine about the ball at Dance House on Saturday. Well, there's multiple categories um, within ballroom. And in this particular ball that we're having this weekend, there's three main categories. So we have face, then we have runway, and then we have performance OTA, which is focused more on voguing styles. Um, so each of my kids, so I've nominated three of my kids to walk and I've asked other houses in 007s within the scene to nominate three walkers to walk those categories and prepare like a good performance for that. It's all freestyle. So it really is dependent on how you sell yourself to the judges and how you work around other walkers because it's a battle. It sounds very much like the work that you do and the performances that you promote uh, very much kind of originated historically from the voguing culture in New York in the 90s. Can you tell us about that? Definitely. Well, for me, being like super queer and really like trying to look for myself when I was young, um, I saw a lot of Filipino um, queerness in Black Latinx culture in ballroom. Like there was a lot of... um, things that were similar in terms of how to survive the society. That's very um, heteronormative, very anti-queer, um, or very tokenistic. So it was all about survival. And that's what um, really attracted me to ballroom. And the, um, I guess, how do you say it? The audacity that people have in ballroom is so powerful and really can shake the whole room up. That's what really grabbed me into it. Um, and having a community and being able to make your chosen family within ballroom is such a beautiful thing that I really wanted to be a part of it. And that's what brought me into this culture. And I'm deeply connected into the ballroom culture in New York. I am in a house in New York. Um, and they've been helping me actually grow the scene here, which is beautiful. And we've been doing this for about, what, three years now? And it's going really, really strong. And I feel like it is something, it's a phenomenon that's going to stay within Australia because of how people can really attune to it and want to be a part of it. And I love the queer empowerment aspect of it. And it seems very much that you're at the forefront of building a queer empowerment Mm. movement around this, especially for queer people of colour here in Melbourne. 
Yeah, definitely. Like I, I feel like there's not a lot of spaces for queer BIPOC um, and trans people in Australia at the moment. Like, yes, there is certain spaces, but they're very scattered. But to have a particular culture that really caters for you is such a, um, a new thing that it has to be here. It has to be available. And the politics of it sound incredibly inclusive. Mm, definitely. Do you feel like you're kind of shattering pink ceilings with your work here in Melbourne? Oh, in what way? Like, Well, just giving visibility, you know, and the empowerment of visibility. Mm, definitely. I feel like we've got to shake the room to make change. So the more we do that, the more we show ourselves out there, the more we do more productions, the more we walk out with our girls, the more change we do. And it doesn't even have to be a um, continuous work of we have to say this and we have to say that us existing and just being ourselves is already a political movement. Do you feel much pressure being a trailblazer and being a role model in this field? Like there must be pressures associated with that. Can you talk about that a bit? Oh, definitely. Like, of course, given that I am also just a borrower of the culture, I am a part of it, yes. But um, I'm not Black or Latinx. I wasn't there when it was starting up. I'm here to continue the legacy of making sure that traditions stay true, but also giving room for evolution and making sure that the evolution and the growth of ballroom stays within what the pioneers and the um, legends and icons overseas um, agree with it. So there is a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure, yeah. What's your vision for the evolution of ballroom? Um, Honestly, it's more about inclusivity and more focusing on the Indigenous trans women here in Australia. Like, they have the closest um, experience experiences to Black Latinx trans women in America. So why isn't it available to them as it is available to us? So my work is really all about bringing them forward and bringing them up and to have ballroom as their safe space. And, of course, today is International Human Rights Day. Trans women of colour in particular are often denied their human rights around the world. And just having a, a performance like this on the weekend so close to Human Rights Day really sends a wonderful message, I think, of empowerment for trans women of colour. And to me, it shouldn't just be about the day. It's every day. Trans empowerment should be every single day. That's why balls and kiki sessions need to happen a lot more often. They need to be seen a lot more because they are beautiful. We are all beautiful. Everyone needs to see us. And I just love that word, you know, kiki sessions. Tell us a bit more about that. Okay, well, kiki means to have fun. It's uh, it's a scene. It's a, it's a noun. It could be a person. It could be a feeling. Kiki is all about um, getting community together. It's about uh, working with the youth. It's about um, just being super expressive. And not taking yourself seriously. So when I say this having, we're having a kiki session, that means we're going to a park, probably going to have a barbecue, and we're going to vogue down and practice. That sounds amazing. And just doing that outdoors as well, and I imagine that's so incredibly important in this era of COVID. 100%. Like, we haven't had um, our kiki sessions in a long, long, long time. And having that so far away from like our reach has been really detrimental to our mental health and just being back on tour has just been very exciting. 
I can just see the I can just see the incredible uh, colour and queerness, the super queerness of Kiki Sessions outside. Um, tell us a little bit more about how they work. Um, well, it's pretty simple. We literally pick a place. It's any place, any time. We can make a session at any point. So it doesn't have to be planned. If I say to the girls, hey, I'm going to the park, then it becomes a massive kiki. Everyone starts coming through. Everyone starts voguing. They bring food. And we just have fun. And the thing is, people don't really understand what's happening, but we know exactly what's happening. Here is our space. Now we've taken over this spot, and this is going to be our bowl for the day. Tell us about the House of Divine. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a hard question. Um, well... I am the mother of House of Divine. I have 14 children at the moment, um, all ranging from different ethnicities, different identities. We're all separate artists. Um, we, I guess, as a whole, do everything. Um, we act, we can sing, dance, make music. It's literally what our hearts desire. We will take it. It sounds wonderfully nurturing. Yes, it's... Well, the thing is, ballroom is equally as nurturing as it is very competitive. Like from what people see um, on the outside perspective, um, on the outside lens, it's very like aggressive and all about battling and all that it is, but that's training for survival. But at the end of the day, it's all about family. It's not even about the production. It's not even about the performances. It's all about how we have each other's backs. Do you find that, you know, that sense of family, you know, really nurtures and enables that survival? A hundred percent. It's knowing that you have your sisters to back you up at any point in time. It's about having the security of, the, like, it's feeling like you have a biological family and the ideas surrounding the biological family, that they will always be there because they're blood. But for us, it's like, we are a house. We will always be there for each other. It doesn't matter what happens. So you can be the strongest person in the world and feel like that because you have a whole house behind you and you can take on every single situation because you have us. Give us those details so people can see your wonderful performance on the weekend. We're still figuring out the live stream situation, but the best way to see and feel the whole vibe is if you come to Dance House on the 11th. It's starting from 5 o'clock and ends at 10. And tickets are available um, on the website at dancehouse.com.au and you can look through the whole finale sessions there. There's a lot of things happening throughout the week and we are just the tip of the iceberg. Kiki Devine, it's been a real honour and a privilege to chat with you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really, really cute. 
the gossip there. Swing low. Well, Emily Bowman is a contemporary dancer. Who's performing at Dance House tonight? Yeah, so it's an it's an improvisation and there's a lineup of about six performers, improvisers, and we'll each do ten minutes each. It's a bit of a um you know, every artist has an improvisational uh, performance practice. And um, so I'm going to be performing with my collaborator, Joey Lehrer, and we have a practice called contact, um, it's in a form called contact improvisation. And so we've been uh, working together for, um, you know, about nine years now and um, been performing together a little bit. So yeah, we'll be performing together on Friday um, and we'll do 10 minutes. And essentially um, it's all improvised. And so working uh, with, we'll work with shared weight and um, and a lot of, you know, not knowing what will happen. Um, we'll wait and see what will unfold in the moment. Um, yeah. You must have a great rapport with Joey to be able to work like that, you know, to be able to work physically with that with that uncertainty, to be able to navigate that uncertainty. Yeah, we do. We have a wonderful rapport and um, I guess we have a, a, really, uh, a really clear and established practice that we've been developing over the last 10 years. Um, this year and last year has been obviously a little thrown with COVID and not being able to practice as regularly as we'd like. Um, but yeah it's it's wonderful to to work so closely with someone and have that uh have that rapport and have that trust that you know he can do you know I trust what he's going to do and he's going to trust what I'm doing and together we can not know what's going to happen and then actually allow it to be an experiment to see what will happen in the moment um yeah so that's really exciting and you know it's a bit of a thrill of improvisation in that sense um, to see, to, to wait and see what happens and to see where it might go on the night, you know, depending on how we're feeling or, you know, what the energy of the room's like or, uh, yeah, many factors. You must have great technical proficiency to be able to do that. Tell us about the level of training involved to be able to, you know, navigate that level of, you know, uncertainty, but also develop the skills of anticipation, of physical anticipation that I imagine you need. Yeah, it's a really, yeah, a really good question. Um, so I have, uh, yeah, I'm a trained contemporary dancer. Um, and so I I went to WAPA in WA, Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, um, and I found contact in about my first, second year of WAPA and um, contact, yeah, improvisation. And, I mean, I've been tra- I've been going to regular weekly jams for the last ten years and doing lots of uh, jams essentially. Um, you know, like music musicians go and practice their form um, and improvise. That's what we do uh, in a contact jam. We come together and, and practice the form, um, and lots of workshops. And you know, about five years into or a few years into um, discovering contact, I started teaching it. And um, which is a great, you know, part of my practice where I'm able to really uh, develop my skills even further and share a little bit of what I know. Um, And, yeah, and then dancing with Joey, we've been, um, you know, we have a a weekly regular practice where we 
come together in the studio and take our time to um, arrive and then, you know, physically and look after our body and then eventually we'll start rolling together and um, start exploring different ideas. What draws you to that physical spontaneity and uncertainty? I think, you know, for me there's an element of not knowing what's going to happen and not um, pre-planning what's going to happen and really trusting my body um, will be able to manage the moment. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a, an amount of being present and listening to what's happening. There's a great saying in contact, you know, dance with the body you've got today. So it's not about, you know, executing a skill or, um, you know, achieving a particular action or pathway or, you know, trick for, you know, trick for, uh, it's, it's really about being in the moment. And, um, and for me, that was really exciting. You know, I, I got to just dance the way, you know, dance in a way that felt very natural to me. And it's really like a question, you know, the whole dance is like, what happens if I put my weight a little further towards my partner? What happens if I, you know, let go of my hands here? Can I reach a little bit further? What happens if I uh, tip my weight off centre and I I fall? Can I manage the fall? Um, Or, yeah, so all these, it it becomes really a question about what what if now and now and now, what happens now? And and that's, um, you know, there's, it's kind of a little bit like, like surfing a wave you know you're just kind of in the moment and uh and staying curious to what might happen so it's really about trusting yourself not just trusting the other person having trust and faith in yourself yeah absolutely um and you know a good amount of curiosity and and uh and questioning and um interest i think you know you've got to be interested in in what you're doing not, don't worry about being interesting um, but actually just kind of getting interested in the dance that you're having and with that person that you're having it with, you know, because no dance is ever going to be the same. It's going to be different every time. Yeah, and that's what really strikes me about your practice, you know, that it's like it's like two original pieces of art, you know, no matter how probably you try to make them similar, they never are. Yeah, it's never going to be the same. Um, every, you know, you can, you can put on an improvisational performance, you know, every night for a week, and I think you're gonna. The audience will get something different each time they come and watch you. And you're gonna, you know, it's you're gonna be dancing in different ways. And um, obviously, there are sometimes things that kind of might repeat or look similar um, because you know you've got certain habits and certain pathways that you you may preference when you're dancing. But um, yeah, it's it's gonna be unique each time you see it. Fantastic. Give us the details for Friday's performance. Friday Now Pieces start at 7 at Dance House and there's a wonderful lineup of um, other artists alongside us. So we've got Rosalind Crisp from Orbost, who's a choreographer um, and improviser, and Catherine McGill, Adam Forbes, Raina Peterson, Marco Shogibard and Amara Rahim. Um, they're all going to be performing on Friday night, uh, 7 till about 8 o'clock, and then Afterwards, there's another event at Dance House, um, which is called the House Party, a bit of a celebrational gathering um, of of the dance community coming together, uh, which is also open to the public. 
fantastic and what a celebration of, of, of artists dancing together uh, at a time when people have been so separated and isolated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's another really interesting point, um, you know, being separated and isolated for so long. And I think um, even coming back together and, and coming back together and improvising in front of an audience is one thing and also coming back together and improvising but being in physical contact, um, you know, touch is quite, it, it, it's it's changed a lot. And um, and I think, you know, recently we we did a little performance day, improvisational practice day, and, you know, some of the feedback we got was it's quite, um, it's really enjoyable to watch uh, people being in physical contact now in this time uh, and being that intimate with each other. Tell us a bit more about how touch has changed from your perspective as a dancer. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like um, throughout, you know, throughout COVID, I... It, it was, um, you know, there was periods where we worked without touch. It's, you know, Joey and I, for example, worked um, more in proximity in relationship to each other and so our practice sort of started going in other areas like more compositional um, areas and working in relationship to each other but maybe not necessarily touching. Um, and then and then when we were able to come back into touch, you know, we also wearing a mask which is you know, can be difficult while you're dancing. Um, and I think initially, like, it was quite coming back after one of the lockdowns, it was it was a lot, a lot of information, you know, a lot of um, stimulation. And I think, you know, you could do a lot less because the touch, you hadn't received, I hadn't received touch in, in a while or, like, danced in that way in such a long time. But to be honest, like, after a few times dancing, it it felt kind of um, uh, kind of like you rip the bandaid off, and it, it practice feels. Um, it, I guess touch has cha- it has changed um, our practice a lot, and some people still in the community, you know, it's it's different for every single person that comes and engages in contact and. Um, some people are less comfortable engaging in touch and would like to dance in solo in relationship to you or um, and some days I feel like I'm not you know I'm not up for having any touch you know especially now because maybe we're back to dancing and I'm not used to that um, after so long kind of doing my own solo practice so yeah it's kind of a changing dance it's 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 constantly changing and and uh um there's you know it it's uh yeah it's interesting to sort of um slow down and take a moment to really appreciate the touch emily bowman thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3cr thanks so much james
Well, Radical Women is an inclusive socialist feminist group, and I chatted with Georgie Hoadley and Alison Thorne about the Religious Discrimination Bill. Well, I think what I find really alarming is that the whole thing is just a licence to discriminate. And I've been an activist now since the, the, the late 70s before we had the whole patchwork, the whole um, mosaic of anti-discrimination legislation that exists today across every state and territory and at the federal level. And if the Religious Discrimination Bill is passed, what it will in effect do is basically shred decades of hard-fought reforms. And thinking about it, I have been out on the streets with my fellow radical women rebels so many times over the, the decades fighting for the protections that we actually have today. And I just find it so outrageous that legislation could be passed that just openly and blatantly would give somebody the right to be a bigot. Georgie, what do you find most alarming about the Religious Discrimination Bill? I think how it could potentially affect people's access to healthcare, um, also also employment opportunities and access to other services that um that everyone should have a right to yeah to have access to it's good to start talking about it um and talking about it in different communities in workplaces um because it's a bill that could affect a lot of minority communities um as well as like obviously the queer community but um, a lot of other communities also um the i mean things like um like the the statements of belief clause which doesn't which doesn't protect anybody um maybe Alison can expand on this a bit but um but it's it's just as bad for for right wing Christians as it is for everybody else I think that the statement of belief clause is really just something that is a licence to discriminate. And um, this whole bill is not about actually solving any kind of problem which actually exists. Nobody wants to see a young Muslim woman applying for a job in a private sector organisation being denied employment and being discriminated against. But in most states and territories, there is protection to actually stop that from happening. All we need, pure and simple, is for New South Wales and South Australia to put that kind of measure in place and we'd make sure that religious discrimination didn't exist. But what the Statement of Belief Clause is all about, it's about giving somebody the 
the, the, the power to trump somebody else's right to live free from discrimination. It's about allowing hate speech and harassment if that is something um, that, that is done under the, the guise of religion. So this statement of belief clause is one of the two really, really dangerous elements of this legislation. The way that I actually see the politics behind this bill is pure and simple. It's payback. And the on that date, back in 2017, when news came out that the majority of Australians had voted yes for marriage equality, that from the very second we won that, we had to be fighting to defend it. And the, the politics of what this bill is all about is it's, it's payback for, for winning marriage equality. But there's some really useful and informative things with, within that. And uh, the fight to win marriage equality was something that we really had to win the, the hard way. The LGBTIQ plus community did not want that divisive postal vote. That wasn't what we wanted. You know, we didn't want a, a, a polarised community that was voting on people's relationships, but the fact that we had to fight so hard to win marriage equality meant that we really had to get out there and win the hearts and minds of the community. And I think we're going to have to do the same thing with the Religious Discrimination Bill. It's really taken decades and decades of people coming out, organising, fighting to decriminalise homosexuality, winning anti-discrimination legislation, winning marriage equality, that what this bill is about is it's about the right wing pushing back and um, trying to roll back the things that we've, we, we've won. But we fought so hard to win those things and we had to win the majority to win those things so I really believe that it is possible to uh, forge the kind of fight back that we need. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. And, Georgia, you alluded to workers' rights before. I mean, this is an attack on workers' rights, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think particularly in places like um, healthcare and schools, restricting people's ability to actually be who they are at work, yeah, Absolutely an attack on workers' rights. And it's something that the unions, I think, need to respond more to. We haven't heard a lot from them, publicly at least, in relation to this bill. What are your thoughts on that, Alison? I like. I agree with you completely there, um, James. Some unions have actually been better 
and have been firing up around this more than others. I think uh, the Australian Education Union and the Independent Education Union have really been protesting about the Religious Freedom Bill from the get-go. But one of the things that we really need is we need the entire union movement to come out against this Religious Discrimination Bill, just as the entire union movement came out and fought for marriage equality. But I'm actually a little bit concerned by what I'm seeing because I think that the Australian Labor Party is doing a little bit of fence-sitting in relation to this bill and this is something which is influencing the, 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 the union movement. And defeating this religious discrimination bill is something that's core business for the, the union movement. When we look at how many workers in Australia are employed in institutions that are actually um, run by religious organisations, it's very, very, very scary what's being proposed uh, by this bill. Many services that were provided as part of the public sector decades ago have now been privatised and outsourced as part of the whole neoliberal agenda that we've seen over the last few decades. And um, some of the, like, the figures, uh, like, are actually quite staggering. Only 4% of residential aged care is actually run by government, while 40% is run by religious institutions and charities. 550 residential aged care facilities are run by the Catholic Church. And... Under this legislation, these organisations will be able to declare that they have a particular ethos and only uh, employ people who they determine meet the ethos of that organisation. And this is not based on the inherent requirements of the role. If it comes to a school um, for example, and 30% of schools in Australia are affiliated with a, a religion, uh, it's not just the religious instruction teacher in a, a Jewish school or an Islamic school or a Catholic school who needs to actually be religious. It's the gardener. It's the admin assistant. It's the maths teacher. And really, I think that shows how so much of the anti-discrimination legislation that we have fought so hard for can just be shredded. And this is core union business. We need the trade union movement firing up and fighting to defeat this religious discrimination bill. So I would urge every 3CR listener, everyone tuning in to, to in your face on this International Human Rights Day, 
to raise this issue in their union. We need unions fired up and active around this and we need unions as part of a united fight back. How does Radical Women see the religious discrimination, Bill Allison, in the context of feminist rights? Well, um, we actually held a very interesting meeting earlier this month where we were looking at the attacks that are happening in the United States at the moment in relation to abortion rights and reproductive justice and linking that with what's happening with the Religious Freedom Bill here. Because one of the things that we very passionately believe is that we that what we're seeing happening here is part of a a global trend what we're seeing with this religious discrimination bill they've they've seen it all before um in the united states with battles um around reproductive justice um, but also um, the, the, the famous case about whether a baker um, had to sell somebody a wedding cake for a same-sex marriage. So this is a, a, a global trend and looking at it from our perspective within Radical Women, we are a socialist feminist, women's leadership organisation and we strongly and passionately believe that any reforms that we win are only as good as our ability to defend them. And we're in quite um, like a threatening and dangerous period at the moment where we really do need to take seriously the threats that we're that, that, that we're seeing. Absolutely. Georgie, are you finding that people are saying to you, for example, that they're feeling really scared about their workplace rights uh, because this bill's hanging over their heads, that people are already saying to you that they're scared for their jobs? My experience at work is that people don't often talk about this. I, I feel like it's still not a common place for, for this to be discussed at work. And maybe that's a reflection of where where things are at with and why these bills are coming up still. But um I'm I yeah, I'm particularly I mean I feel threatened in my security of work or future work um, if things like this keep coming up. And, Georgie, you have to wonder, don't you, what will be next if this does pass? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, um, like, I, it's, I, I think, I don't really know. I mean, it, it's, this just allows for so much more discrimination when uh, people already face so much. Um, it's hard to see things really, um, yeah, you, 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 things that definitely can't get better for people um, if this bill is passed. That's right. And it must feel to many people, 
um, that you're talking to, that this is kind of taking us back to the dark ages if it does pass, that, you know, it's it's regressive, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. it's not positive, it's negative, and it's taking us backwards. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, it's just, it's such a shame after, I don't know, after so many people, so many people voted in favour of... Um, of the same-sex marriage bill and there was so much support. It it feels so disheartening that so quickly things are being revoked um, and and people are just finding new ways to to um, new ways to attack other people who are just trying to live. Like, um, yeah. George, is it your kind of view that this kind of feels like a, a punitive, kind of almost like abusive form of legislation, considering that the issues you just raised? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it feels like, um, and I think Alison touched on this at the start. It just feels like a, it just it feels like a revenge sort of um, from the from the conservative sectors of government that were upset about the result of the plebiscite. It's just. Um, it was like a their compens- compensation for for that result. Alison, what are your thoughts on the links between the religious discrimination bill and the rise of the far right? Well, um, I really think that the same forces that we are seeing out on the streets organising around vaccinations, calling for so-called freedom, you know, waving Trump flags, the the neo-Nazis that we're actually seeing out on the street, uh, you know, like it is the same movement, it is the same global movement and it is the, the same forces that are actually behind uh, all of this. And what these forces will do is they will look to different things that they can tap into to try to draw people uh, into a broader far-right agenda. And um, there's a range of things that are are, are being tapped into. Uh, Certainly anti-vax is one thing, but what we're also seeing the far right organise around is a great deal of hysteria around any kind of challenging whatsoever of the, the the gender binary, we saw all of the attacks around the the safe schools coalition, uh, racism, nationalism. You know, all of these things are things that the the right wing will potentially tap into. But what the right wing is actually seeking to do is to build a globally connected mass movement that is uh, mobilising disaffected 
disaffected types uh, in in order to take on workers, take on the union movement, take on uh, the the left, take on feminists and, and and queer liberation. The the shocking attacks that we saw, for example, um, with like right wing forces mobilising outside the CFMMEU office, for example. That was something, you know, that was extremely disturbing. And what all of these forces are doing is they're focusing on individualism and they're chipping away at the idea of collectivity and social solidarity. And that's what feminism the union movement, queer liberation, all of the, the the struggles that so many 3CR listeners are passionate about, especially on this International Human Rights Day, really want a collective fight back where we stand together in social solidarity, not atomised right-wing individualism. Alison and Georgie, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Thank you so much. 3CR. And we've published the contact details for Radical Women on the In Your Face page on the 3CR website. Just call me 
once touched my cheek before you leave me. Just call me angel the morning slow. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Sovereignty was never ceded. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 